0: I don't think it was, any of us had any idea when we started in January 2021 that we would still be going. In fact, if you would have said back then we were going to do 100 episodes, I'm <laughs> yeah, not I sure we would have started, no. to be honest. So, <laughs> so I guess I just want to say thanks to both of you and thanks to our listeners and the people that are here for joining us lo- along the way. So, <laughs> guess what? <Yay! laughs> That's
1: great. Welcome to Hallway Conversations. We're a trio of educators who have plenty of questions about teaching and learning and school culture, and we believe in the value of reflection and collaboration as we seek to keep growing as teachers. This podcast is our place for thinking out loud together about issues in education and why they might matter to Christian educators. Welcome to the conversation.
0: Hello everyone, welcome to the Hallway Conversations Podcast. My name is Matt Beemers.
1: I'm Abby DeGro. And I'm Dave Mulder.
0: Friends, we're always looking for topics of conversation and feedback, so please email us at pod at gmail.com. That's pod at gmail.com. Your feedback and your ideas are important. Two years ago at the Heartland Teachers Convention in Iowa, Abby, Dave, and I did our first live recording of Hallway Conversations. Last year, Dave and I were privileged to go to Langley, British Columbia at the Inspire Ed Christian Education Conference, and today will be our third live recording. We are in South Bend, Indiana at the CEA Teachers Conference. CEA brings together Christian educators from Michigan, Indiana, Illinois, Ohio, and Wisconsin, and we're delighted to be here. The mission of CEA is, quote, to inspire and support Christian educators and encourage community by pr- providing opportunities for spiritual and professional growth based on God's word. And I think it's fair to say in our day here that we've experienced that. Absolutely. The CEA mm-hmm. is definitely fulfilling Absolutely. its mission. Dave and Abby, I think you may know this, but do you know that today is our 100th episode? I don't. I did crazy. not until you
2: emailed me that this morning. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I don't think it was, any of us had any idea when we started in January 2021 that we would still be going. In fact, if you would have said back then we were going to do 100 episodes, I'm <laughs> yeah, not I sure don't. we would have started. Nope. To be honest. So, <laughs> so I guess I just want to say thanks to both of you, and thanks to our listeners and the people that are here for joining us a lo- along the way. <laughs> so mm-hmm. guess what? So, Dave and Abby, I have the privilege of teaching history and philosophy of education at Dort University with some amazing third and fourth year students. And in that class recently, we've been talking about vocation and calling. And we've leaned a little on Stephen Garber, a book you're familiar with, uh, Visions of Vocation, Common Grace for the Common Good. Garber has this great quote in in which he says... (laughs) In the context of one's calling, how does one learn to see with the eyes of the heart, to see one's self as responsible for the way the world is and isn't? Mm -hmm. And when I read that, I I found that beautiful, and I felt that quite... Um, I don't want to say anxiety-inducing, but I felt this heavy, the weight of the job, the weight of the calling, uh, to be responsible for seeing uh, for seeing the world for the way it is and the, and the way it isn't. So I'm just curious, what are your thoughts about that idea of calling, um, of being responsible for the way the world is and isn't? How do you see with the eyes of your heart, and invite your students to do the same. I know that we've all been teaching for for a number of years. Some would call us veterans. Um, I think that's fair, how do you you see with the eyes of the heart, whether it's in the classroom or or out of the classroom? So Abby, can I I put you on the spot with that?
2: Yeah, I think early in my teaching career, I tended to want to externalize the things that were happening that I didn't like in my classroom, right? So these students are this way because they have a problem with X, Y, Z. Or that student was disrespectful because they have something going on that they need to fix, right? Um, And I think I was probably in year two or three when I started taking more of a responsibility for the climate of my own classroom. And that was actually freeing because the more agency I gave myself, the more things I could do about it, right? Because I can't change a kid, right? I, I can't, if it's the kid's fault, there's nothing I can do about it. But if I have some responsibility in that, in creating a climate and having. Um, something about the way in which I interact
1: yeah.
2: with that student, then then it can change. Then I can yeah. influence change. And so um, that agency is really important. And I try to, when I teach undergrad students, yeah. I have seniors in their fall semester before they student teach. And in that class, we talk a lot about understanding students, being able to empathize with adolescents in particular, mm. um, and. But also, how can we take what we know about them and shape a classroom that works for them instead of working against adolescent emotion or um, the way that their brains are wired or their need for socialization? If I design a classroom where that doesn't respond to any of those needs, of course I'm going to have behaviors, yeah. Yeah. right? <laughs> but <Yeah. laughs> As one will. Um, but if I can. If I can take agency and responsibility for that, and I and I try to tell them the same thing, right? If you need to see and respond, so that you can affect change.
0: Yeah, just a follow up to that, if I can, without asking you to bare your soul. Was what led to that transformation? Like, was there? Oh, I
2: crashed and burned a lot in my first two years. Yeah. Yeah. I was twenty two and I was teaching high school seniors and juniors, yeah. right? American English and writing. They yeah. not their favorite always. Mm, and yeah. so there was there was a lot mm. of I had a lot of issues. I butted heads yeah. with a lot of kids.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yep.
2: And so and I didn't want to have a career like that. Yeah.
0: yeah. And so you just so, had to make a choice yeah, at some yep, point. Absolutely. Dave, how about you? This idea, like, um, how does one learn to see with the eyes of the heart, as Garber said, to see oneself yeah. as responsible for the way the world is and isn't, and thinking either in your classroom or preparing teachers or, yeah, just thoughts on that. Yeah.
1: It's, it's something I think a lot about, right? Like, how, how big the gap is between what I say I believe and what mm-hmm. I actually do. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if anybody else in this room ever feels that way. Like, I say I believe all my students are unique image bearers, and then I lump them all together as the class and just kind of teach towards the middle and figure out Everyone's gonna be okay or so right and like that mismatch and so like how do you how do you address that when you become aware of it right like there's just a, a introspection and kind of reflective practice I think is, is part of that right so seeing with the eyes of the heart is I guess what I'm what I'm saying yeah. when I when I hear you say that phrase Matt um, to think about like what does that actually look like to say do I see my students as image bearers if I say I believe that like that has to inform my mm-hmm. practice then mm-hmm. in, in some way. And we're never going to get it right, right? On this side of glory, we're going to get it wrong. Some days we get it right. Those are great hmm. days of teaching. Yeah. But but a lot of times we don't get it right. And so I guess to just also have the humility to say, I am still learning. I have not arrived yeah. as, as a teacher. I'm, I'm in a process of becoming. Yeah. Right? That, that idea. How about you, Matt?
0: Yeah, I, I think thinking, that, thinking along the same lines, this idea of... Um, being able to look myself in the mirror, like to see the eyes of the heart, to know that I haven't, don't have it all figured out, mm-hmm. and and I know that about myself, to be honest, that, that I can I can feel like I do have it figured out, yeah. Um, and so I have to be like I have to, yeah, put checks and balances in place actually, um, to see to see myself anew actually, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and this tension of like, hey, you don't have it all figured out. But yet also to know that his grace is sufficient. Mm-hmm. like that he looks down on us in our really good days and yeah. our really bad days. And if I if we took a microphone out into this audience and said, "Tell me about a really good day or a really bad day," for most of us, the really bad days would come up come up very quickly. We could all we could go there very quickly and to remind ourselves like that in those moments, even when we fail, and we do all the time, can we actually get to a point where we believe that there's nothing we did that day that's going to make Jesus love us less or more mm-hmm. than he did, right like mm-hmm. to, yeah. and to believe that like to not just like I know that, mm-hmm. but to believe that like yeah. to really believe that and, and to actually surround myself with people who will yeah. remind my, remind and to me.
2: rest in that yeah right? and mm-hmm. I think yeah. that's
0: I think that's the encouragement we need to be giving each other as educators like we know. Teaching is not for the faint of heart. Like, Amen. we know that. And we know that it's... in I could be wrong about this, but it feels like it's become harder in the last three or four mm-hmm. years for all kinds of variables, many beyond our control, almost all of them beyond our control, mm-hmm. right? And so I sometimes feel like the classroom, even though... I know we're not fully in control. It gives me a feeling of control. Okay, so what are we going to do with this 45 or 75 minutes in here? And how am I going to use, through the work of the Holy Spirit, to use this time not just to teach them content, but actually allow, like, try to form and shape them to walk in this world in a very unique and peculiar way? That's what I love about you. I love what I teach. I love the privilege of being with young people. And it's exhausting. We're all exhausted. And yet <laughs> you all have that? You go yeah. home exhausted every day? Yeah. 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 Okay. Right? Yeah. And yet I Not just us. <laughs> yeah. And, yet I, and there are days, right, that it's like, why, why do I keep doing this? And I think this line reminds me of this, right? Mm-hmm. Like to say, hey, we have the opportunity to help students now go out into the world and just like nudge the world a little bit more towards the way God intended when he first created it. That's beautiful. Let, let me ask one. I know we have a list of questions, but if I can ask one more, Dave and Abby, because sure. I'm just thinking about Garber right now. And he has this line where he invites us, and it's a beautiful book if you haven't read it. It's really encouraging, folks. Uh, and we'll we'll leave a, a link in our show notes to it because um, if you haven't read it, it will be good for your mind. It will be good, good for your soul. But Garber invites us to pay attention, like those two, are to pay attention. And I'm wondering, just from your perspective, As Christian educators in this room, what are some of the things we should be paying attention to in 2023 and 2024? David, can I put you on the spot here first? What, yeah. what should we be paying attention,
1: or what are some of the things we should be paying attention to? So, I, I'm going to say, I'm going to answer that question in a very careful way because I think what you said earlier, Matt, about teaching has not gotten easier. I think there's only been more things put on teachers' plates without things ever being taken off of teachers' plates, and we can't be parents and coaches and judge and jury and everything else that we're right. We can't do that. At the same time, I would say something we need to be paying attention to is kids' mental and emotional health. And and for all the slagging that social emotional learning gets in the popular press, I think this is actually a really important thing for us to do. And particularly for us as Christian educators who try to view the child as a whole person, physically, cognitively, mentally, socially, spiritually, all these different dimensions all at the same time that we can't reduce what we're doing to just the academic, the cognitive aspect Mm -hmm. of it. And and I think that that's something that's very easy for me to do. I'm pointing the finger at myself. I'm not pointing at you all in the room here. I'm pointing the finger at myself. It is easy for me to reduce students to just their academic life. Um, But to keep in mind that they are whole people who've got a whole lot going on outside of my classroom Um, and to have an awareness of of how what I'm doing in this class impacts other parts of their life, right? I can't always control anything as if we can control (laughs) anything. Thing right, um, but to have an awareness of that, and mm-hmm. so that's why when you say pay attention, that's yeah. something that's become very, um, very important to me. Really? That I want to get to know my students as unique individuals and to try to care for them yeah. um, intentionally. Oh, thank
2: you. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna give a very practical yeah. answer if that's okay. Um, I think when I started teaching, at least I, as a teacher, never gave a thought to. Um, what if one of our teachers leaves and we can't replace them? Because that never happened, right? Because we could always replace them. Um, and as someone who works on the admin side a little bit of a teacher prep program, um, we do not have enough teachers to replace the the vacancies. Mm-hmm. And so I think we need to be paying attention as faculty and as administrators and as parents to to how we can get good teachers in our classrooms to stay mm-hmm. and, um, and what is making them not stay. And how can we draw young people into the profession? Um, Our department is trying to be more intentional about that. We've got some things in the works that we're trying to think about how to draw high school students into um, the education profession in a way that's more formal than we've ever done before. Because we feel like we need another pipeline before they just come to us. But now we, we need to be more intentional about bringing them in, in ways that we've never done before. And I think schools are having to be more intentional. I know some of you are administrators in this room and feel this, need to be more intentional about um, having recruiting teachers, recruiting students, and thinking about what we can do to promote our schools as a great place to work. Um, and part of the keynote this morning I thought did that really well. like this is oh, yeah. what is great about Christian education. This is what's beautiful about Christian education and kind of advertising that well.
0: Yeah yeah I, I think one of the things I've noticed in working with young teachers as they're getting ready to go out into the world is they're starting to ask questions when they're looking at, hey, where do I want to teach? Um, For sure, they're asking questions like, where is God calling me? Absolutely. Mm. They bathe those decisions in prayer. Um, It's beautiful to watch. But they're also, and I'm glad they're asking this, They want to know how schools are going to take care of them in their first year. I think it's a really important. I would want to know that as a first-year teacher. Like, what does mentoring look like? What does support look like? Um, What does co-planning look like? Just those types of things. Mm. Um, And I think the other question they're asking is, how are you going to help me professionally develop as a teacher? I want to be good at what I do, and can you help me with that in my first few years? I'm really proud of young people for for asking, asking those questions. I also just think when I think of paying attention, I just think of are we paying attention to the students walking into our classroom who don't have as much food or any food in their lunch pail? Are we paying attention to the students who are coming in with red circles around their eyes? Are we paying attention to students who have haircuts and new shoes Mm -hmm. and are are we mentioning that to them? Um, Because one of the things we realize with young people, and this isn't true for everyone through God's grace, But you might be the only adult that actually notices that that student has a new haircut. You might be the only adult that day who calls that student by name. You might be the only adult that day that recognizes new shoes or old shoes or no food or or some change in behavior. Mm -hmm. And I think whether when you ask a student about it, whether they want to talk about it or not, just even asking the question says, like, I notice. Who doesn't want to, in in our hurting lives, to know that people notice us Um, in a world that can easily brush past kids um, and and not see them? And so I just think things like, like does every student in your school, do they hear their name spoken aloud by one person every day? Like, just to hear your name. Because can you imagine going through a day where no one uses your name? Like, that's... That would, that's just and that's the reality yeah. and, and so I finally just like I've said to students in my own class like to just to take care you care for students by planning great lessons by having great pedagogy I really believe that is an act of care um, but it is also through through paying attention because the re, the reality is we all have students in college university college from pre-k to 12 that for those students, our classrooms are the safest six or seven or yeah. eight hours yeah. of their day. That's right. And to acknowledge that and just to, to consider that um, yeah, as we interact with them. Dave, I know we've got some I know we've got some questions. So we have not seen so. Yeah, I'm looking. Can I, 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 can I, can, look. can I one? pick one? Yeah, yeah, let's go.
2: Okay. All right. So someone asked, and I like I need to think about this, so it's a good question. How do education departments attempt to prepare young teachers for the day-to-day grind of prep, teach, grade, repeat? Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> the answer is not well enough. Nope.
0: <laughs> You know, as soon as you said you needed to think about it, I knew I was in yeah. trouble. I yeah. was like, if you
2: Yeah. So one way, I'm just going to say one way. Um, so when our students get to student teaching and, like, our seniors in their fall semester get to, they have a 60-hour practicum, or they do, like, a PDS, so like, a year-long student teaching where they're in the classroom all morning, Monday through Thursday, mm-hmm. um, I think one way that we do that is we do not let them... We don't give them any breaks on any of their other work, right? And so, like, they're still expected to show up to class. They're expected to do all their lesson planning. Um, They are expected to be teachers in that student teaching semester um, and to hand things in to us to be professional. We have, like, dispositions that we keep track of. Um, things like that, I like to do real world scenarios in some of my classes where I say okay here 's an idea. you have to have a lesson ready in forty minutes yep. right like write it so, things like that um, that that can hint at that, but we cannot sustain it for what they 're going to have to sustain. Um, in the real world. And some things you have to learn by doing. And so I think student teaching is as close as we get. We try to get them in the classroom yeah. a lot. I don't know. What am I'll, I missing? I'll
1: follow up on that. So yeah. Abby's comment about um, having them try to, do you remember when you're in a teacher prep program, and you're like, I have three weeks to plan this unit. <laughs> and you're like, yeah. no, I only
2: have three weeks to plan and it is, this unit. it's one <laughs> unit. And that's all you have to do. Just, right. just plan it.
1: Right. <laughs> what a world. <laughs> 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 But to that point, that's something we've tried to get a little more realistic about. So I teach our elementary science methods class. And when I started teaching that class, I would just be like, yeah, pick your favorite unit. Well, whatever curriculum you want. i right? like, no, that isn't real teaching. And so now, like, I've tightened that up a whole bunch. And it's like, this is the crappy textbook you get.
0: <laughs>
1: and I'm even telling you, this is the unit you have to teach. No, not plants! Oh! <laughs> oh, whatever, right, whatever their unit was, so like assign it to them. They have to do this one, and then to Abby's point too, we, we're getting better, I think, at tightening up the timeline. So when mm-hmm. I taught our, our middle school cricket, we have like a general methods course that is tailored to like elementary, middle school, and secondary. So I taught our middle school general methods course, and it was like stand and deliver. Here's the standard you need to teach. You have thirty minutes, plan the lesson, go, and like mm-hmm. that. That I think is much more. And you realistic. should see their eyes. Oh, though. it's so funny, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> It's terrible.
0: <laughs> no, I, I yeah, those, I can't, I'm not going to add too much to that. I just think about my daughter. My daughter, I have a daughter who's in her first year of teaching up in uh, Minneapolis, and she's she's doing amazing, um, so much better than I did my first year. Um, no, we're so proud of her, and we keep telling her she should be proud of herself, but, like, you know, when we check in with, like, how, how are you doing? And there's a lot of things that's, like, I think you're realizing, like, you, you have to, until you're actually sitting in that seat in your own classroom, mm-hmm. um, so we can make those preparations. Like, I think one thing that stands out for her is just how physically and emotionally yeah. exhausting teaching is, right? Yeah. Like, you are, yeah. like, one of the things I think about, if I think about her, I think about any of you, like, teaching is such an act of vulnerability every day, right? Like, you are, you are standing in front of whether they're 5 or 18 or 22. You're standing in front of these people. They're all staring at you, and they're passing judgment on what you're doing. They are, right? And, you, and you're aware of that, actually. Not all the time, but you're aware of that. And, and one of the things that, so that I said in, in uh, our philosophy class was, in some ways, uh, but I don't want to use this language the right way, but in some ways teaching is like you're sort of making this public profession of faith every day. Like yeah. you're standing mm-hmm. up in front of young people yeah. saying, this is what I believe to be true about the world and brokenness and restoration. And, and that's a vulnerable thing. And I, like, I don't know about you, being vulnerable <laughs> is exhausting for me. <laughs> it is exhausting. And because you're putting, because you love kids, you love your content, you love pedagogy, you want it all to go well. And then you're being judged on that. And even more than that, you're sort of judging yourself. And we can be really hard on ourselves oh, as teachers. Yeah. And so, so I think we do our best. And then there's also an element of there is only so much yeah. you can do. So, yeah. Yeah.
1: anyways, Dave, do, do you have another question? I, I got one. I, this one made me smile when I saw it because, well, I'll get to that. Uh, how the heck do you keep up with the lingo of the kids? Should you? Yeah. Also, what does a home, effective homework look like? <laughs> So thank you for that. Uh, but we'll take the first half and then maybe the second yeah. half oh, a little boy. bit there, too. Um, so how do you keep up with the lingo of the kids? You can't because yeah. you're old. Yeah. And like, no, uh, one of our good friends, Shannon, who is brilliant and teaches with us on the faculty at Dort and not in our department, uh, his kids are so funny because they're like, Dad, you got to keep up. And, and so they made him what they call the yeet sheet yeah. because...
2: I get it. That's clever.
1: Yeah, yeah. right. So you I have no idea what
0: that means. No. <laughs>
2: Yeah. It's like a cheat
0: sheet, but yeet is a word that you should, like, yeah. That's new. You can't sorry. Yeah, I can't. No. i no. <laughs> over 50, but you can't use the word right. yeet right. anymore. Okay, uh,
1: But, uh, and, like, I joke, but seriously, I think that's maybe one of the best ways to, like, know, and, like, I've learned... I'm okay being the awkward penguin in the room that I'm going to say the things the kids say and they look at me like, dude, don't do that, right? And Mm -hmm. I'm okay with that, right? Like, I'll own it, it's me, I'll come in and... But there is a sense of that, right? Like, how do we keep up with what the kids are saying today? Yeah, so
2: I think, like, I'm an... English, I'm a language teacher. So I love to have them play with it, right? And teach me things. So kids love to need to be able to feel like they have something to teach you too. I'm a firm believer in that, right? Like, so asking them questions about things that I don't know about so they can tell me things, I think is really important. I still do that at the college level. And I think that's a great opportunity to be Mm -hmm. like, so tell me about that. Like, translate that into standard English, right? Like, make it some of a, like, a fun... Yeah, he's just like, that's not fun. (laughs) But, um... (laughs) <laughs> but, but playing on it and using it in some ways, and also that's just good. asking my kids because they'll
0: tell
1: yeah, me. Your kids will fill yeah. in. You but
2: but, they but, will. I, but yeah. I
0: also think overall, yeah, most students appreciate that you want to know a little bit more I think about so the world,
2: right? Yeah. I, think, I think be most curious, most make it fun.
0: Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm saying that as someone who finally figured out what the word "vibe" means, so I am really behind <laughs> on a lot of this. So that's it's, not even hard. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. Thanks thanks up, <laughs> thanks for meeting gamers. Dave, how about the homework piece? I know. Yeah, yeah. So you just, first of all, I'm just going to put a plug in here. Dave has a blog that he's, yeah, he and a newsletter. So, newsletter. So, so newsletter. you need yes. to get on
1: Dave's newsletter. So we'll put a link to that newsletter. You can find me. I'm Dr. Dave. Yeah. Dr. Dave.substack.com. Yeah. You can find but me. We'll put a link, we'll put a link there. <laughs> but you've
0: done, um, a few years ago, you had a blog post called No More Crappy Homework. That's that right. has How many views now, well, Dave? It's well, well over
1: 10,000. Well over 10,000.
0: Yeah. And so I know you've given, we've We've all given a lot of thought, a thought yeah. to homework, but I know you in particular, you've done, you do assessment, you talk about homework. Yeah, you start. Okay.
1: So <laughs> you start well, without getting away in the weeds. Yeah. No, this is, this is the problem. When you have a passion area, because you've seen things that were done that were not good practice, and then you're like, oh, I got to tell people like this is mm-hmm. not good. Right. So I always want to be a little careful and cautious about that. Um, at the risk of sounding like a professor of education, I have done some research on this topic to <laughs> say, like, what is effective homework? Um, the problem is this. Uh, the research is very inconclusive on homework. And the best summary I can give you is some homework has some benefit for some students in some circumstances.
2: It's very precise.
1: Right? Like, yeah. almost never is one-size-fits-all homework good homework. Almost never. Now, of course, we're busy people, and I can't write 30 lesson plans for my 30 students because I will die. And so, right? there so was
2: another question in here on balancing home and, home and school, so we'll get to that. Yeah.
1: But but that's kind of the, the, the best practice idea I can give you, and I am hesitant to say best practice even anymore because best practice, that's so context dependent to say something is best practice. So I'll use the language of promising practice. A promising practice would be um, if you can have very clear Purpose for the homework. Like, you should be able to tell students this is why I'm assigning this work, and here's how I believe it's going to benefit your learning to do this work. And if you can't answer that question, do not assign it. Like, you have to be able to have that level of clarity. Okay? The other thing is if you can make it time dependent and That like this is this is hard, okay? But different kids take different amounts of time to learn things. Like maybe you don't know that, right? (laughs) Different kids, okay? Um, And so to make it time dependent, instead of like, man, I want to go back and apologize to those kids I taught. I was a middle school math teacher 25 years ago. My my first teaching job. I had 170 kids come through my classroom every day. And like thinking back to that, I cannot imagine. I had 170. Of course, I gave them one size fits all homework Mm because I was dying, right? But for some of those kids, I assigned them 30 math problems, and that took them hours to do. And some kids flew through it in 10 minutes. right? So instead, to give them something that's time-dependent and say, I'm going to expect all of you seventh graders to spend 20 minutes on doing these math problems. Some of you are going to get 20 done. Some of you are going to get two done. That's OK. And But that flips the script so much. right? Like, that sounds almost heretical. It's like, what, so some kids are only going to do two problems? That's not fair. Not fair. I'd say not fair is having to spend three hours working on that crappy math homework, right? So no more crappy homework is kind of it, OK? So those, okay. Um, The other thing, this is the one that that really, oh, I'm I'm just going to come out and say it. Elementary students, the, the research is quite clear on this. Elementary students have a negative benefit from doing homework. In other words, the more time they spend, the less benefit there is. And it actually starts to hurt their learning. Okay? So I will be so bold as to say this, reading, yes, they should read, but I don't count reading as homework. Okay? And
2: please don't punish students by making them read. Yes.
1: Oh my goodness. Yes.
2: Reading, okay. should, reading isn't home. It's, it's a joy. Right? Right. It's, right. we got to frame it that
1: way. But, but for yep. grades K through four, the, the research strongly suggests the, the benefit from doing homework is zero or negative. So for grades zero or grades K through four, grades zero through four, grades K through four, um, mm-hmm. like seriously consider whether or not you're going to assign it. I don't count reading as, as homework. Reading is important any any way you slice it. Okay, um, middle school it is a very marginal benefit, very marginal benefit. High school probably because they're older and better at metacognition and they can think about their own learning processes and things like that. If you talk with them about what the homework is and why you're assigning it, it tends to have some benefit. Mm -hmm. Some benefit for some students under some circumstances, right? All of that. Yeah. Yeah. I
2: also want to talk. I heard David I. Smith um, give a presentation that really helped me think about this question as well. So I want to give him credit for it. He's a professor at Calvin. Um, But on the formative nature of homework. Mm. um, And he said in that talk, he said the, um, the biggest detriment to his family life at home was the homework being assigned by his daughter's Christian high school because she would come home and she would go upstairs and she would do homework and she would come down for dinner and be there for 30 minutes go back upstairs do the rest of her homework and and so he said what if what if we changed the homework in order to facilitate conversations right or what if what if Um, the Bible homework didn't require our students to be alone in a room with a textbook and instead required them to be having faith conversations with parents or grandparents Mm -hmm. Um, what if your English homework um, was interviewing a grandparent life story or an older person in your community Mm -hmm. or giving back and what if we changed our homework practices to be forming our students um, for community instead of for isolation and so that was really powerful to me thinking about what kinds what is my what is the formative effect of the things that I am assigning my students especially as a high school teacher
0: yeah that's yep. good yeah I think I, I just think about it as a, I'm thinking about it as a parent right now um, when we moved to the United States three four years ago, we came from a school where our kids had four or five classes a day that were 75 80 85 minutes long mm-hmm. and my and my daughter goes to a grade school so that like there's no shade here but like she has eight classes a day and which means she could get like a lot of homework mm-hmm. if every teacher thinks well 20 minutes isn't that much times seven or eight classes and mm-hmm. that adds up and I'm not. I'm not against ho- like I'm not against homework. I'm not against good homework. There you go. But, um, but <laughs> word uh, searches but do not assign yeah. word searches. Yeah.
1: <laughs>
0: There's no research that supports word. Sorry. Yeah. No. <laughs> Unless it's on Canada, but <laughs> otherwise. <laughs> You can color Canadian maps too. Like Even. that's fantastic. Coloring. Uh, do not say well, coloring. What's the learning target? Okay. But, but I think. But I. But I do think we need to talk about like that as a faculty, right? And yeah, I, I mean, right. And I never thought about that when I was a high school English teacher. Like, like I know those other subjects are important, but high school English is really, really important. <laughs> so, like an hour of homework, and and I think when I but started- also
2: we should be writing inside our classes. Yeah, yeah, 100%. and reading inside our classes. Yeah. yeah, and
0: I think the yeah. mistake I made, and I can still do this because we don't always get it right. Is that somehow we associate ri- rigorous teaching with a lot of homework? Mm-hmm. Like that, right? Like, oh, he's a hard Mr. Beamers is a hard. Well, what makes him a hard teacher? Well, he gives lots of homework. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make you a hard teacher. It just makes you a teacher who gives lots of homework. Right? <laughs> right? And so I think just sort of confu- confusing that and needing to get to get over myself yeah. in, in that sense. So I think just even faculty conversations about what makes good homework. Mm-hmm. Like, w- like what's the purpose of homework? Um, how do we we do this well to allow our students to flourish because i also know again maybe that's it's different in our family or where we live students are not less busy today than when i went to high school like they go from school to cello lessons to sports practice to piano Mm -hmm. to church to and so i just think and and again like we're not responsible for all those things that's just the reality and so Is there a way, when we talk about wholeness and wellness with homework, that it might also just contribute to wholeness and families maybe flourishing? Or if I can just say, even eating a meal around the table? Because that's just not possible for a lot of students.
2: So interesting. So I'm also a youth leader at our church. And I recently just took a couple of students who come to Dort now from my church to breakfast who graduated from our program and they're freshmen. And we had a conversation about, um, they said, I can't believe how much time I used to spend at school. Like mm. these are college freshmen who are in a pretty rigorous college situation. And they say, we used to get up when it was dark and go to school and not come back after practice until like 6 p.m. because we were talking about their schedule at school. And they're like, we have so much more time now. I can't believe we did that. We were so tired. Mm. And so even like their switch to college where they are they are learning more i would dare bet than they learned in their like the rigor has not gone down between high school and college right it has increased um but they're the time that they have that they got back as a gift right and them looking at their high school selves and saying i don't know how we did that Mm. right like we have to remember what we're asking of kids it's it's big Uh, and yeah
0: and just naming the reality, there's a lot of external pressures like standards yeah. Oh, yeah, tests. For sure. And so, and that's why I just think, how do we have conversations about it like what might what for us to do this well what would it look
1: like and maybe this will be the final thought i'll share about the homework question um there is some good research to suggest that too your school should have a homework policy and every teacher has to stick to the homework policy whatever it is you got to agree to and every teacher has to do it because if you have anybody who's bucking it whether they're given way more or way less everything falls apart Okay. But that's hard because that means you had to actually have a conversation and not just mm-hmm. like a congenial nice conversation but an actual collegial conversation where yep. you're probably going to fight and you, and you actually have to have that fight. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. An argument. Yes. In the yeah. finest sense. Yeah. An yes. argument. Right. Dave, what else do we have on? Okay. The, so so I like ask? this question a lot. I want to ask you guys this one too. How has your curriculum changed? This is one from one of our former students, Katie. Yay. Thanks, Katie. How has your curriculum changed through the years? How have you decided what's <laughs> worth keeping, revising, or removing? Where do you find inspiration for new items to add to the curriculum? And what questions do you answer when determining whether a unit or topic fits your curriculum? Mm. And I, I picked this one because I'm actually thinking about this a lot right now. I'm teaching a brand new course, and it's not just new to me. It's like this course has never existed at Dort University before this semester. And that is a very pressing question for me. Like, how do you choose when it's brand new? And it happens to be a core class. It's not even in education. It's a core class. And so it's not even like... I can win over the ed majors on force of personality, right? Like, oh, okay. but now I've got all these business majors and engineers and nurses and social workers, and they're looking at me like, "What are you doing? You're, you're a weirdo, right?" Because I come in like, ah. Oh. School teacher, let's go! Right, and they're like, "Who are you? What are you doing here?" Right. Um, so, so I've had to really think this through. Like, how do you choose? What are the right resources? And I think the key thing for me was I tried to write really clear learning targets for the course, like course level learning targets. And I always say not more than five, literally a handful, because that's all I can actually assess, right? And so this would be my encouragement. I think this holds true not just at the college level. I think K through pre-K through graduate school for a course not more than five learning targets, because you can actually assess five things. If you're trying to assess 37 things, you will fail. You, you can't, right? And so I guess that would be my, my big question when I think about curriculum design. Like, OK, have clear learning targets, not more than five at the course level. Now, five learning targets at the course level might mean they're going to learn 37 things, but they're going to group together under those five bigger topics. So anyway, that's that's part of my yeah. thought process. How about you guys? I
2: would say like as far as what contributes to curriculum change and kind of where do I get ideas, I'd say my own education is probably the biggest driver of change in mm. my own um, courses. So I finished a doctoral degree in 2021. Yay. So that I think I took so much of that and put it into my own coursework. So they look very different mm. after that degree is finished. But I think even informally, it doesn't have to be a formal program. Um, I heard a colleague say recently that a book Club that he was part of has helped him think differently about this text that has nothing to do with the book that he read, right? Mm. So I think any time where you can get together with colleagues and study something you're interested in is going to have a positive net effect on your own teaching. So any connections you can make between disciplines, any sort of professional development, any sort of reading or learning that you can do, even if it feels disconnected from what you're teaching, will have a positive trickle-down effect on your own. Curriculum.
1: Yeah. Mm -hmm. With that question, how has it changed through the years? I'll just follow up on that one, too. That's such a good point. So, like, I've taught our science method, elementary science methods class. I started adjuncting that class in 2006, you guys. I've taught the class like 23 times. That sounds ridiculous when I say it out loud, right Some of y'all have been there, you've been teaching for a long time and you know like you know that course, it's in your back pocket, but then it gets stale for me. It's new for the students every time because they've never taken this class before, but it gets stale for me. and so that's a big part of it for me too like thinking about what do these students need mm-hmm. and not teach the kids who I had 23 semesters ago. Like what are these students, the ones in front of me this, this year, this right now, and, and I think that, that really does help us too to kind of keep the curriculum fresh for ourselves or at least our approach to the curriculum can keep it fresh.
0: Yeah, I just I think professional conversations is a long goes a long ways. Um, we have a group of eight, nine, ten faculty early Tuesday mornings we' go out for coffee and um, we talk just a lot about our courses and teaching. And I I just learned so much like I just even think about um, what does it look like in our schools to you know school leadership to somehow find a way for teachers in your school to observe other teachers and like not in an evaluative way like just go go in there and here's here's a five dollar Starbucks card for each of you like go for a coffee at some point talk about what you saw um, try to give kind specific helpful feedback I think it's I think part of it is just how do we create, like we want these things as school leaders and how do we give teachers the resources and and one of the greatest resources we can give is time. So I just think having the time to think about it. You know, like I've I use all different. I've only been teaching university for four years. I use all different textbooks in my classes than I did four years ago because Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you sort of you you just sort of you stand on the shoulders of the person that came before you, and those were good texts. But it's like, hey, like here's the need I'm seeing in these students, so we're gonna we're gonna shift textbooks. Uh, Recently, we went to. Um, Andy Wolf and Lynn Swanners book yeah. about human flourishing and I just think that's just a really practical and important book about About what it means to flourish and how teachers can help students do that Dave and I, are, I think we have time for one or, one, one or two more
1: two more here. Let me think um, okay. I've got a question.
0: Okay. How do you or why do you care so much about the subject you teach? Why do you care so much about your students? And what motivates you to keep caring when it's hard to
1: care? Oh my spleen! <sighs> oh, an easy one. Okay. Yeah, softball to end yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> so, subject,
0: students, and what motivates you to care when it's hard to care? Because some days it is.
2: Yeah, I think I think teaching is such an art and science together. And so I love the subject. I love to show that to students and to show them pedagogy and to show them how their faith is connected, not only to their content, but to their pedagogy and how their pedagogy matters. Um, I'm super passionate about what I get to do every day, as they would say, like we get get to do this. (laughs) Um, And so I think. It's also the act that I'm actually doing, right? Like, so I get to model for them what I'm trying to teach for them, and that's just a really synergetic thing that that mm. gives me energy. Um, and I think for the students themselves, I get to see them in authentic learning experiences. So, so many of my students, um, I get to supervise student teaching, or I get to watch them. Like, we just did um, presentations where they had to be like the expert on a subject and share their professional learning to their students. Um, I get to um, actually see them enact the things that I'm trying to instill in them. And so that helps me be passionate for them. I get to read their work. I try to give them meaningful work that fosters reflection that I get to then see and grade. Mm -hmm. And so I think that helps me care when I can see the connections they're making through the work that I assign. Um, Yeah, it's. It's not hard for me to care, so I don't know how to answer the last yeah, question. Yeah. Good.
1: Yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah. It's yeah but easy. it is hard to do the job, right? Yeah. Like it's not hard to care, but it is hard to physically keep going sometimes. Yeah. And, I mean, to, and that's what I meant. Yeah. Like, yeah. How do you keep going? Yeah.
0: How, do you keep going? Yeah. how do you keep going when it's hard to keep going?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Right. Uh, yeah, take a nap. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Good to you know, yep. to that point. So sorry, I'm plugging my newsletter here. The the one that I wrote this week. Um, I I had a minute. Um, some some weeks it's overwhelming. Yeah right and And I personally professionally, it's been an overwhelming week for me. And Monday afternoon, I was sitting in my office, and I was like, "I just can't do this right now." And so I went and I got a cup of coffee and I put some music on and closed my door. I don't close my office door. These guys know, like I, my door is open, right? But I just needed to not be with people for a while. And I just took ten minutes just for me. I had a cup of coffee and listened to music for ten minutes. And nothing about my situation actually changed in that 10 minutes. But my attitude shifted a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I think we need to be able to give ourselves permission on mm-hmm. hard days. When, it, when it's heavy, take 10 minutes just for you. And, and I know people talk a lot about self-care and all that. And like, a cup of coffee is not going to solve my problems. No, it's not. It's not. Right? Um, But it can be just enough of a reset for that, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Similar to what Abby was saying, I love my students. Man, you guys, I get to teach a variety of things. I teach a lot of freshmen, I teach intro to ed. Um, Teaching freshmen is not that different from teaching middle schoolers. (laughs) It's just not. okay. Uh, So I love that. I also get to work with grad students in our Master of Ed program. I love working with master students because everything is real for them. Mm. right? It is real work for real people that meets real needs every single day. That's the kind of work we're doing. So that is life-giving automatically. And then I teach a few things in between. A lot of the classes I teach are oriented around teaching. And that's the weirdest of all, right? Because you're teaching, but you're also teaching up here, right? Like at the, you can't see on the radio because I'm like gesturing with my hands here, right? But it's got to work at two levels at the same time, right? I'm teaching the class, but I'm teaching them things about teaching all the time, and that is a, a joyful and tricky thing to figure out it's sometimes, very meta. too. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. Next, yeah. That's
0: lingo. <laughs> 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 see what I put up? <laughs> Friends, we know that your time is valuable and we want to thank you for joining us today for another hallway conversation. Whether it's this day, this week, this month, or this year, we hope the Lord gives you what you stand in need of to end well. And we'd like to send you from here with blessing. So to our listeners and to the people in the room, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace and give you peace and give you peace. Amen. Thanks for listening, everybody. Have a good week.
2: Thank you.
1: Thanks! This podcast was literally dreamed up during one of our actual hallway conversations. Our music is by Ethan Moulder. Hallway Conversations is created and produced by Matt Beemers, Abby DeGroat, and Dave Mulder. Hey, we have a favor to ask of you. Would you be willing to rate this podcast or write a review in your podcast app? Or if you found this conversation interesting or helpful, would you consider sharing it on your social media? Those things really do help podcasters out, and we would be so, so grateful. Thanks for listening, friends. This is the part I'm going to cut out later, right? Because I'm hemming and hawing, and that sounds super awkward. If you listen to this later, you'll be like, yeah, you cut that part out. Yes, I did. That's going to be the outtake now. Yeah, I cut that part out. Yeah, I did. Okay, okay.